Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about the Second Testament, a new translation. Well, Scott, today we're talking translations, and there's uh, quite a few of them out there already, aren't there? Oh, yeah. There's um, there's a translation for everybody, and then all these publishers, you know, they have a Bible for teenage girls, and they have yeah. a Bible for teenage boys, and they have a Bible for Republicans, and a Bible for Democrats, and so, yeah, these are editions of the Bible that have study notes and things in it that allow publishers to sell more copies of a Bible. Yeah, as a pastor, I get the question all the time, what's the best study Bible to be able to do? And there, there are some really good ones out there that you yeah. know, are helpful and insightful, but there does seem to be a good number of them out there. And, and translations, I guess, you know, something I don't think I've ever asked you is, when did the really advent of so many different translations come on the scene? Well, I was a college student when Zondervan decided to publish the New International Version. At the time, uh, Ameri- I would put it this way, evangelical fundamentalist Christians and African-American Christians all used the King James Bible. The mainline denominations were more inclined to use the RSV because it was published by the National Council of Churches. So let's just say in the 70s, uh, going into the 70s, there were basically two Bibles, plus some pastors used uh, individual translations like uh, J.B. Phillips' translation. Mm -hmm. There was a book called The Amplified Bible. Uh, There was... Yeah, there were a couple other translations. Some Bible students, um, inductive Bible people, liked using the um, the ASV 1901, which was a very stiff translation, but good for um, inductive Bible study. And in the, I, I believe it was in the late 60s. It may have been the early 70s that the Lachman Foundation produced the New American Standard Bible. And that also was pretty uh, formal translation, and it was uh, good for, for inductive Bible study, which was the, it was the ruling method for teaching uh, young people how to grow up in the faith and learn to read the Bible for themselves, the inductive Bible study. So when the NIV came out, uh, let's just say about 74, 75, the first one, I was in Grand Rapids when they were coming out, and I got, I remember I got a copy of the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. and they just published that, that separately, and I read it. And then my college teacher was really big on, on the NIV, so I got one of the new ones. It was just the New Testament, and I read it through very carefully and marked it up, and it was my reading Bible for a couple years, and then they published the whole Bible together. I believe I was in seminary in the late 70s. Let's just say I remember getting a copy of this when we were in a mobile home, Uh, so it had to be about 77, 78 Hmm. when I got that. 
But that seemed to uh, send a message to the world that uh, the, the days of the King James, the days of the NRSV, the days of a, let's say, a hegemonic translation were over. And it spawned in the 80s and 90s uh, a variety of new translations. And so right now the average Christian uh, who wants copies of the Bible can get all kinds of different versions online, many of them free, and uh, we have more translations than we've ever had before in one single language. So yeah. that's a bit that's a bit of a of a story of when they came about, uh, but uh, it probably needs to be emphasized that until I mean the NASB was a pretty quiet arrival. The NIV was a very, very noisy arrival, mm -hmm. and it spawned a lot of criticism, and it led many people to defend what's called the Byzantine text type, or the Textus Receptus text type, uh, and say that the King James Version is superior. Uh, and so there were these kind of academic debates going on. But by and large, the NIV broke the hegemony of the King James Bible, and in the, um, I think the King James had already been broken for mainline, uh, more liberal progressive churches who were already moving to the RSV. So a couple terms that you threw out, I just want to make sure that we're clear on, are things like version, which NIVV is version or King James version. Um, what are some important terms that we need to clarify in the way of what's a, a version, what's a translation, and is there anything else that we need to know in the way of terms with those things? Well, I, I think I, I have not really thought about this one too much. I don't think there's any difference between a version and a translation. Okay. Um, but um, they're all based upon Greek. They're all based upon Hebrew in the Old Testament with some Aramaic passages and Greek in the New Testament. And they base it on uh, judicious examination of the original text so they can translate the Bible as, as uh, close as possible to what sometimes is called the original text. So uh, those are all translations. And, you know, while we're talking about translations, uh, people often ask me, Chaz, what's the best translation? Yeah. I don't very often get the question, what's the best study Bible? But occasionally yeah. I do. Yeah. The best, you know, uh, what's the best translation? And I always ask two questions. For whom? You know, is this a Bible for um, someone who has been to high school or graduated in high school but not to college or who uh, did not go to high school? Uh, is this a translation for um, a fairly sophisticated audience? So that that's one thing. And then I always ask, for what purpose? What is the purpose of the translation? If you say, I want to have a Bible that I can sit in my easy chair and read uh, and read easily without mm -hmm. having to get up and get dictionaries. Yeah, that that's different than I want to be. I want to study the Book of Galatians carefully, or I want to read the Sermon on the Mount analytically. What's the best translation? So purpose matters. And then sometimes you say, 
no, I'm going to be reading this aloud to a class, or I'm going to read it aloud in a church. Some translations are really good translations, but they're not very good for reading aloud in church because people have a little bit harder time following them. Mm -hmm. And so we have a variety of translations in part because we have two sort of poles, two ends of a spectrum of translation theory. So let me just cover that briefly. Yeah. At, at one level of translation is what sometimes is called formal equivalence. Uh, and that would be a translation that is often called wooden. I don't like that word wooden because it's so negative. Uh, sometimes it's called word for word, which is usually uh, used as a criticism against another translation. You say, some people say, I like a word for word translation versus a thought for thought. And they mean by that that a word for word is going to be more accurate. Not so is what I would often say. Uh, so there is at one level where someone wants to take the Hebrew and the Greek and wants to have as close a translation to the formal nature of that, Ara that Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek text in English as possible. They want to keep it as close as possible. At the other end is dynamic equivalence. Mm -hmm. And a dynamic equivalent uh, operates with a translation theory that says we want the reader to have the same response to the English text that the original readers had to the original text. And so you can't translate, gird up your loins in First Peter and have most people know what in the world you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> yeah. All right. So a dynamic equivalent would say, no, we're not going to have the formal equivalent, gird up your loins. They're going to say, get your minds ready for action. Uh, because that's the, that's the uh, dynamic equivalent. That, that evokes in listeners or readers the same response that gird up your loins did to people who read First Peter in Greek. Mm -hmm. so, so we have this. Now, um, th those are the two spectrums. You could, you could put uh, the NIV and the NLT as dynamic equivalents. And a stronger, uh, in a sense, I, I don't know if people are going to misunderstand me when I say this, but I'll say it. A stronger version of dynamic equivalence would be paraphrases um, and clever re-expressions so that people can understand it that one would find in the old living translation and what Eugene Peterson did in his The Message, which is far and away one of the most popular Mm -hmm. translations that have ever come out in English. Oh, yeah. Those are those are sort of dynamic equivalents on steroids. And they, they just push things out further. And um, so th those would be dynamic equivalents. A more formal um, a more formal equivalence or a formal correspondence one would be like the um, uh, the King James the ASV, the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, mm -hmm. and more moderate translations would be something like the NRSV and the ESV. Although the ESV trumpets itself as more formal equivalent, I'm, I'm not as convinced of that 
as their marketers are. But then there's a couple other translations that are very popular today. Uh, the New Common English Bible is a Bible I really like. Uh, it's published by Abingdon. Uh, it is more, it is a dynamic equivalence. Uh, it's brand new, uh, translated by experts in, the, in languages. And, uh, but it's, it's along there with the NIV. And then there's N.T. Wright in his Kingdom New Testament, which is also a strong version of dynamic equivalence. So, so those are, uh, that's just sort of a map. Yeah. Uh, I like to, uh, uh, and Chaz, you know this from my classes, I poke, I poke at the ESV because it is uh, far more concerned about being complementarian and Calvinist than I, I would prefer. So I poke fun at it, but I often uh, finish my, my little diatribes and preaching about translations <clears throat> by saying that all these translations that I've been talking about, the NIV, the NLT, the New Living Translation, the Common English Bible, N.T. Wright, the NRSV, the ESV, they are, and I would say the same thing of Eugene Peterson, they are all reliable. Anybody can read these Bibles and get the, get the big picture of what the Bible's saying. They are not distorting. They never tried to distort they have biases, but all translations have biases. Uh, so, um, so do you think it'd be fair to challenge somebody, maybe in a like who was really in one staunch camp of formal equivalence versus dynamic equivalence, um, by saying, really, we need to be looking at the purposes and having. Uh, uh, faithfulness or like like you said accuracy to like reliability that within this map and this spectrum that you've drawn there still is the the place for there to be reliability despite wherever they fall in the spectrum of formulaic versus dynamic well Chaz you went around the pole there a couple (laughs) times I think I think the question uh, I, I would say that these translations are, they are reliable. And uh, you, you raise something that I call tribalism. Yeah. And that is there are, there are some devotees of the NLT. There are some devotees of the NIV, the TNIV, which mm-hmm. isn't, is available. There are devotees of the Common English Bible, the NRSV, the ESV who um, sort of parade around and trumpet that they have the best Bible translation mm-hmm. there is. And unfortunately, far too many pastors are saying these things. And then people get to thinking that if you don't use the ESV, <laughs> or if you don't yeah. use the NIV, that you're using a product that might be a dangerous for yeah. your faith. Or, or heretical, yeah, the, yeah. unfaithful. Oh, that's, that's very wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, I blame the marketers. And I blame people like uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem, who bragged too much mm-hmm. about the ESV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's created these tribes about this. And this is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've worked with the Greek text of the New Testament since I was 17 years old. So I'm getting on 50 years mm-hmm. of reading the Greek New Testament. And... I am constantly uh, seeing that 
different translations bring to light the clarity that I think is found in the Greek text, and I have not yet found any translation that I say, now this one got it exactly right. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing. Uh, There is no way to translate the word in German, gemütlichkeit, perfectly. Mm -hmm. Different translations bring out different phrases, different dimensions of that beautiful German word. And the Greek is so complex, there are Mm -hmm. so many lines, Mm -hmm. so many words, and our language is changing, and our intelligences are different, that different translations are valuable, and I I would encourage people to have more than one. Well, um, the reason why uh, we're talking about translations today is because um, if many people have paid attention to this, They know that Tom Wright came out with the Kingdom New Testament. Tom Wright's Kingdom New Testament was the foundation for his little commentary series on the whole New Testament called, I think it's called the Bible for Everyone. Yeah. And he translated a passage, and then he offered a brief um, reflection and commentary and meditation and devotion on it. All right, so at the end of that, Uh, He put that together with his editor, and I was so excited. I thought, that is a nice translation. And so I carried it. But I remember thinking, you know, nobody really wants to have just a New Testament because you got to have the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't carry it. I I didn't preach from it because, you know, I use the Bible that the churches that I'm speaking to are using. I try not to create problems from the pulpit. Um, but then while Tom was doing the, N.T. Wright was doing the New Testament, a great scholar at Fuller, John Goldingay, was doing the Old Testament, the Bible for everyone. And he was translating the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden I heard, uh, I think in the spring, that soon we would see the entire Bible put together from the, every, uh, the Bible for everyone so Golden Gay would have the Old Testament and Tom Wright would have the New Testament. And I thought, fantastic. Well, I hadn't I have to admit that I had not used any of John Golden Gay's Bible for everyone, but I had read uh, very much uh, his translation of the book of Psalms. I'd read uh, many of the of his commentaries on or the commentaries on Psalms. So I'd seen his translations and um, I had seen some of his translations in Isaiah and Daniel, and I really liked what he was doing. It was it was unique. So I got a copy of the Old Testament, which John Golden Gate calls the First Testament, and I started reading it from Genesis one on. And I wasn't into it uh, two or three chapters, and I said to myself, "There is no way." that John Golden Gay's translation and N.T. Wright's translation belong together mm-hmm. for the simple reason. Now, they, they are together. Fine. That's two great scholars putting together uh, their own work, and it's fine. It, it'll, it'll work. People will read them. But Golden Gay's translation is a, is a different beast altogether. Tom Wright, uh, Tom Wright can translate and make it so English— um, that you, you, it just, you say, that's exactly how we talk, mm-hmm. right? 
John Golden Gate had the opposite intention. He wanted people to read the Hebrew, he wanted to read an English translation that was much closer to the Hebrew Bible, that sounded like Hebrew, that if the text was rough and unfinished, and if a sentence was incomplete, he left it incomplete. He did not fill in words. Furthermore, he did something that I really like. He took words that were sort of technical words, theologically freighted words, words that you and I would all know uh, are loaded, but beginning Bible readers go, what in the world? So you see the word justification, or you see the word in, in, in Golden Gaze expiation in the Old Testament. You see a word like purity. Or you see a word like holy. These words are used so often. Mm -hmm. And John Golding can say, I'm not going to let people get by with this. I'm going to give another word uh, a place rather than using um, a term like purify. John Golding Gay uses the word decontamination because that's what's going on in the temple, decontaminating contaminated things. Humans are decontaminated. And uh, so he, he doesn't use words like sin the way we use them. He'll use waywardness or making mm -hmm. mistakes mm -hmm. or something like this. And so when I look at N.T. Wright and Golden Gate, I say, these are two different philosophies and theories of translation. And I told the editor at InterVarsity this, so I'll make a long story short. I proposed a translation of the New Testament called the Second Testament that followed the translation theory instead of for Hebrew, but for Greek, for the New Testament, for the Second Testament. And I've been working on that for about a month. Um, I'm in Matthew chapter 18. Yeah. And, How's it going? Uh, uh, I love it. I love the work. I sit here with uh, two big lexicons open, my Bauer, uh, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, uh, the new... The new lexicon from the Brill Dictionary of Ancient Greek. I uh, I have a, a few translations open. The NRSV, the NIV, the CEB, a Common English Bible. Uh, I have uh, another translation that I like that is more formal is uh, David Bentley Hart. I like that. I don't like the format of it. It's not very easy on the eyes. I have N.T. Wright's translation open. And uh, I just work with the Greek text and uh, work my way through uh, each passage. And, and my goal is to do very much what Golden Gate did to the First Testament, and that is um, if, it's, if it's an incomplete sentence in Greek, we're going to leave it that way. If it's a participle, we're going to leave it as a participle. We're not going to turn it into a verb. If it is, um, the name is not Jesus, it's Jesus, so it'll be Jesus, it's Jacob, Jacobas, it's not Jacob. It won't be James, which is the English version of, J of Jacob. So we're going to leave the translation so that you're, you're all of a sudden transported into a non-Englishy world. And my complaint, if I have of, of these translations that I like so much... And I say they're reliable, so that's not what I'm not I'm not criticizing them that way. 
uh, if I have any complaint, is that our Bibles are so accessible because the English is so easy to understand that we no longer recognize that this text was written in the first century in Greek by Jews, mostly, yeah. and maybe all. And so I want, I want people to feel the way they feel when they read Golden Gay, which is um, it, it feels not like English, but like another language, Hebrew. I want them to feel like the text is Greek. So this will be a Bible uh, for people to read, but also for a, a compliment to other Bibles so that sometimes they'll read something and say, well, what, would it, what was it more like in Greek? Uh, they can read David Bentley Hart or the Second Testament and, and find that out. So as you're, you know, almost through Matthew here and well on your way of translating the New Testament, what has been your biggest challenge so far? And what do you envision your biggest challenge to be as you work through this project? Well, this is that's a good. These are good questions, Chaz. The um, I'd say the biggest challenge is consistency. Uh, When you go from day to day and maybe miss a few days because of things at the school or we travel. I end up speaking somewhere. I come back to the text. I forgot that this Greek word uh, was used earlier in the text. So I'm constantly going back to earlier uses of a Greek word to make sure I'm giving them a similar translation, yeah. or at least, and I try to be as close uh, and and to do the same word with the same English as possible. Mm-hmm. Some words are impossible that way. Uh, so uh, consistency is really hard, and I want to develop a consistency for each author. So I want Matthew to sound differently than Mark, mm-hmm. and I want Luke to sound sophisticated because Luke is, his Greek is at a higher level than you find in Mark. Um you know, I joke with my students, and we're in Illinois. I say, Matthew's from Illinois, and Mark is from Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a Hoosier. Uh, Luke is uh, an Ivy League guy, East Coaster. John is, uh, I, I say sometimes he's from California. He's kind of kind of Far out there. Out there huh? Far <laughs> out. Um, and I want people to feel that. I, I don't want them to think that it was all written by an English grammarian who made sure everybody sounded the same. Mm-hmm. I want them, I want each author to have voice. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy to do. That's, that's the big challenge is consistency. The second one, no, no kidding, is the word Kai and. Huh. Um, this word occurs all the time. And many times you will say, do I need to translate it? And it's the same with the word Lego, I speak, uh, a pen. Do I need to say that every time? Most of the time, uh, you know, Jesus said to them saying, um, you know, you don't need the saying. That's uh, unnecessary English, although it would be Greekish. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm debating that. And I've, I'm, I'm 18 chapters in. And I'm still not completely decided on how to do this. And so right now I have some inconsistencies on doing that. Um, but, and then Kai, one, one thing I've done, 
Kai begins sentences in Greek. We begin sentences in English with a period before the previous sentence and a capital letter beginning the new sentence. That's how I translate Kai at times. If the Greek New Testament has a period, then a Kai, I don't use the word Kai. I don't use the word and. Uh, but it's, it's very difficult. It's far more complex at that level. And the problem is, you get 18 chapters deep. It's a lot of work to get them all repaired. Mm -hmm. So, oh yeah, I would. I'm just thinking about that as you're talking and I mean, realizing thousands. the yeah the implications of that. If you get to like the later Pauline epistles and think, ah, oh, you know what? This word, I'm really having a tough time. That's got a <laughs> that's a pretty big trickle down effect to have to go back and try to. Just, change stuff around after, yeah, the, I mean, after that's, the fact. But. That's a big issue. So, yeah. But you see, some, what I'm finding is that the, the balance between the Greek text and making it English uh, is not as simple as saying, well, I'm going to have a formal equivalent. Oh, right. Because formal equivalents oftentimes just are just extra words or yeah. uh, they don't make sense. Yeah. So you have to try to make sense. So I'm 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 starting out with formal equivalence and budging toward a moderate dynamic equivalence at times. And uh, I've read enough of Golden Gate to say no one's going to be completely consistent here. So, oh, sure. so we're going to have to deal with it. So yeah. there, there we go. Well, that's cool. And, so and, last, And I want to say to everybody, my, my translation of the New Testament will be absent of tribalism. Ha! Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do have to translate. I do translate the word brother as siblings when I think it is generic rather than an actual male. So that's that's I don't think that's that controversial. Sure. Well, I imagine this will be something that we'll continue to follow up on in podcast episodes and will be fascinating just to see the different things that you're learning and yeah. and just observations you're making as you work on this project. And um, this is a great time to interject if you got any questions for Scott. You know, we're still doing the Ask Scott um, portion. Of course, we didn't do it today, but occasionally we'll continue to, to bring it in. If you got any questions, maybe, you know, as you're looking through the New Testament, Testament, something you're really interested about how he'll translate that or just the, the whole process in general, shoot those to me as always, either at my email at crobbins, C-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at seminary.edu, or to the link I'll include to do a, a quick audio recording. But um, Scott, to wrap up, what would you say you're most excited about for either this project just in general, getting to work on it, or what it will be able to bring to the conversation of biblical studies? Well, two things. One is I really like uh, working with the Greek text and reading the Bible all day long and translating. So I'm having a great time myself. The second thing is I am excited about the opportunity for Bible readers to have a translation that in I, I would like to say in many ways will be unlike any translation out there um, because... I'm trying to, uh, I, I don't want it to be as Englishy as most translations. I want it to be more Greeky than any translation out there. So 
I'm hoping, you know, I'm I'm excited about how how readers will will uh, be impacted by this. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, you heard it here first on Kingdom Roots about the beginning of this, and you'll, I'm sure, enjoy having the resource in your hands when it comes out down the road. But um, we're thankful, as always, to have you join us. And, uh, you know, obviously something so important for the kingdom to continue to take root. We need resources to be able to draw us to the word, to draw us to the text, and for us to be students of that. So I'm um, excited for what that's going to bring us and, uh, and offer us in the future. So thanks for joining us. We look forward to continue this conversation on our next time together as we continue talking about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.